0: Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women in science, technology, engineering and maths, or STEM, an opportunity to share honestly and openly about what it's really like working in these typically male-dominated subjects. Each week, one woman shares her stories and experiences. She could be a public figure, the girl next door, or someone from a far-off land. The point is she'll be deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we're not distracted by the details of her achievements her labels, or what she looks like. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, also a woman in STEM. I studied mechanical engineering and ended up as a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my television work, I've met some incredible women from a diverse range of STEM fields. And you know what? I've been more amazed about what I've learned from these women when the cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. These women have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And it's their off-air honesty that I'd love to share with you through silence. This week, my guest is in the field of planetary astronomy and Earth system science. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to be here.
0: So what were your feelings towards finding out that this was an anonymous show?
1: I think it's pretty exciting. Um, I... I've never heard of something like this before, and I think it it provides a really great opportunity to to be able to share honestly about women's experiences in STEM.
0: I've had all kinds of uh, mixed feelings about it because I think, you know, there are such incredible women out there doing STEM, women like yourself, and I kind of want to shout from the rooftops that, you know, I I've got this amazing woman on the show. Please, everyone, tune in. But at the same time, um, often to really find out the truth about their experiences in STEM does require that lack of pressure to keep up their sort of um, public image.
1: Yeah, I agree. It definitely takes the pressure off. It makes you feel like you can say anything.
0: Yeah, cool. Well, tell me about your experiences, planetary astronomy and Earth system science. That just sounds so complex. Um, How did you get into it? And did you know from a young age that this was the career path for you?
1: Yeah, so um my mom got me a picture book of the solar system when I was 5 years old. <laughs> and um this was in the early 1980s and we hadn't even visited some of the outer planets yet, so a lot of the uh pictures especially of uh you know Uranus and Neptune were were just artists' representations of what they might look like, but I didn't know that as a 5-year-old. And I remember looking at this book of the planets and just being fascinated and thinking I want to explore all these places. And, uh, and so that I think really planted the seed in my mind of, of wanting to do planetary science. I didn't know what that really meant or what that was at that point, but I just remember being incredibly fascinated with the planets themselves. Um, and so, uh, as I was going through school, I, math was always my favorite subject. Um, starting in you know first grade, I just, I took to it really easily. And, um, I remember, you know, just always really liking math. And then getting into sixth grade, I had a really great science teacher um, and started really, really enjoying doing doing science. Um, and so that was kind of how it started for me was that. But definitely it was it was that picture book of the solar system as a five year old.
0: <laughs> it's fascinating to note that it was your mother that gave that picture book to you.
1: Yeah, so she was a, a education, or an elementary um, education major in college, and I think I was kind of like her project. <laughs> so she, um, you know, she tried to expose me to as many different things as possible. Um, you know, I remember all sorts of, you know, and the, the one of the things that she also did was biographies of famous women. I remember she would. It, Some from a very young age, you know, we had all these biographies, you know, Helen Keller and uh, Louisa May Alcott and just various women doing different things, you know, not necessarily science. Um, I don't think she ever thought I would become a scientist. There's none of that in our family, really. Um, And so. I think it was a surprise to her when I sort of took to that as much as I did, but she just supported it in in whatever way possible. So I really, I really attribute my interest in science to her just initially kind of seeing what I would be interested in.
0: Yeah, not just her as an inspiration, but it sounds like uh, role models were really something that kind of inspired your curiosity for the sciences.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember Amelia Earhart, the biography of 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 uh, learning about what she had done and just all these. And I think, I think back to that about how my mom just kind of put all these famous women, you know, books in my room and how this was probably planned on her part, but I should probably ask her, about, you know, what made her decide to do that? Because it definitely, definitely influenced me in wanting to, um, Pursue a STEM career.
0: So, how has the journey through STEM been for you? Um, I'm guessing that your sciences are not particularly uh, female populated.
1: Yeah, especially um, I'm. I, I you know I grew up in the '80s, and then I was in uh, I, I was in college in the late 1990s, and um, so I had a, a absolutely wonderful high school physics teacher, and he was just you know, doing all the de- demonstrations and just everything that, uh, you know, a great physics class can be. And so um, I took physics in 11th grade. And I remember I just during that class thinking I'm I'm going to major in physics. Um, I don't know what that's going to lead to. Um, I didn't really I didn't even know that planetary science was a, a career that you could have. Um, but I figured, you know, I can major in physics when I'm in college. So I'll just start and I'll do that. Um, and so I got to um, college, and um, I started off in the honors physics sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd done really well in physics in high school, and and here I am in this honors physics class. And there are fifty people in the class, and um, seventeen of us were women. So that's you know not a horrible ratio, pretty good. And the first test that we did was, you know, they, they try and do this in, in college courses, I think, to weed weed people out, you know, who get the people who really want to be there. And it was a really hard test. And I think I got something like 71% on that. And I was devastated <laughs> because I was, you know, I had previously been like getting straight A's and everything. And, uh, and so I'm sitting there with the 71% on this test and just thinking, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm not smart enough to do this maybe I'm not smart enough to be to be a physics major and I remember there was a guy sitting next to me and he got a 70 percent, or you know this basically the same grade I did and he was like oh it was just a really hard test you know it's just you know and he just brushed it off like it, he didn't he wasn't internalizing it like he was this huge failure um as I had as I was and uh and so I I tried to t- you know take on that attitude that he had and just be like no we just have to study harder it's you know it's okay um, and you know eventually I ended up working with uh, different people and going into office hours and you know uh, pulled my grade up to an A by the end of the semester but by the end of that semester there were only 17 people total left in the class so started with 50 and only two of us were women so the rate of dropping mm. of that class by women was so much greater than by, by the men. Um, and I think probably a lot of the women had that same thought that I did, like, oh, I'm not smart enough for this. And uh, it, it just ended up that, um, that I was fortunate enough to, to not drop, you know, when I had all those thoughts. Um, and, uh, and I think what I really attribute that to also was at my college, there was this program called the Women in Science Program. Which paired um, incoming freshmen who thought they wanted to major in STEM uh, gave you an internship that first year, and so having that um, the fact that I was working in an astronomy lab um, that first year was really really helpful in uh, in making me see that okay you know the classes are something that you have to get through and you need to do well in them but but there's so much more outside of just just the classes themselves.
0: Wow. I mean, your story about the 71% is so poignant. I mean, I think young women who have that natural curiosity and passion for science go through that where um, they start to be very self-conscious about their performance in STEM and often that is what makes them drop the subject.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember, I I love, you know, I love uh, liberal arts as well. And I remember I, uh, immediately after I got that grade, I I went to the catalog and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I should just be an English major. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with being an English major, but I started planning out, plotting out, you know, okay, these are the courses that I could take, but to let yourself be derailed by one bad grade. And when I, when I talk to, um, I often go out into schools and talk to um, you know, middle schoolers or things like that, um, about being a woman in science. And I, I like to tell that story because, um, and, and then I tell them, do not let one bad grade derail you from what you want to pursue. Um, there is a way, <laughs> you know, you, you can learn to study in better ways and, and, uh, and just be being persistent, I think is, is one of the most important things to have.
0: I kind of want to reveal to the world that you're working for an organization that is just so awesome.
1: <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I work for NASA.
0: <laughs> yeah. How did, you, how did you get there? Uh, Was so, that always a dream?
1: Yes, I think so, absolutely. Um, so, okay, so I majored in physics and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with that. Um, and... I saw a flyer in the physics department about um, applying for a NASA internship. My junior year of college, and so I, uh, you know, sent out the paper application <laughs> way back in the day, and mm-hmm. um, and heard back, and I got um, got into uh, this this internship called the NASA Astrobiology Academy, which was out in California. Um, I grew up on the East Coast, so um, and I went to school in the East Coast, so going out to California was really exciting. You know, they paid your travel and gave you a stipend, and I got to work at NASA Ames Research Center, which is um, up in the you know the Bay Area of, of California. As a result of that internship, I got to fly on a NASA research aircraft um, during uh, while the Leonid meteor shower was was taking place, and I got to take spectra of meteors as they were coming into Earth's atmosphere. And as an undergrad, I mean that was just the most amazing experience, and it, it was that, that because of that internship that I realized that if I wanted to do um, planetary astronomy, that I needed to get a PhD. And um, when I told my parents this, they were like, oh, gosh, we can't pay for that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we've already there's already been, <laughs> you know, your, your undergrad was mm. uh, was stressful, you know, was expensive enough. Mm. And, uh, and I was like, no, guess what? You don't actually have to pay for grad school in in science. And this was a revelation to to me when I figured this out and to my parents, you know, you you work for as a RA or a TA or, um, or you can get a fellowship and it will pay your, your tuition and give you a small stipend to live on for the, you know, four or five or six years that you're, that you're getting your PhD. And so that was that was an amazing revelation that I learned when I was out in California, uh, because we, as part of that internship, we visited, um, you know, uh, colleges and universities in the area, and ended up visiting the the the, the place that I eventually applied to go for my PhD. Um, so. I really credit that internship experience with kind of opening my eyes to all that was available. And now I actually run a summer internship myself. And so I'm able to um, give that experience to students every summer. So
0: that's so awesome, because what I'm what I'm seeing from um, conducting this podcast is that really girls are encouraged to do what they do by seeing people that are similar to them do what they want to do.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I I mean I would remember being in these physics courses um me and the the one other um female student um and we ended up becoming really great friends because we always were the only women in class together. But you know, if you're sitting in a class and you're the only woman or one of only two, it kind of you you kind of feel like you're almost on display because you know, mm. if you're not there like let's say you miss class everybody knows because the one woman isn't there you know it's it's whereas if you're a man you can be more anonymous um mm-hmm. and where I, I always felt like i was sort of on display in 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 classes when i especially um you know back in the 90s when there were even fewer women in science than there are now
0: yeah you almost become the mascot
1: mm-hmm. exactly yeah that's a great way of putting it
0: and so how have you dealt with being the mascot in your science
1: it's definitely gotten better. And it got, um, when I started graduate school, it was, uh, the the ratio was significantly better in, because I was actually in a, a geological and planetary sciences department. And there's a little bit, there, um, there are more, um, there are more women doing geology, um, it, or at least um, at that point than there were in like straight physics, um, or engineering or things like that. So, um, I think just befriending the other women that are in the program. I mean, I ended up um some of my you know greatest friends and bridesmaids and things were, you know, other fellow women in science. And I think having that support network of other women really helps. Um, you know, whether it's just doing problem sets together or um just uh, you know having having a friend talk to you about your, your research or things like that. Um so I think think befriending the other women um, has really helped me
0: and and why do you think women do drop out of subjects like physics but not so much subjects like geological science
1: I'm not sure actually I mean you know the nowadays I think at least in medicine there are more more women um you know pursuing MDs than men and I think that's uh, and I'm, I'm not sure why there's that, uh, you know, physics and engineering have fewer, but biology and geology and uh, are, are gaining. Um, I, I really don't know what the answer to that is. Um, all I know is that they almost lost me from physics.
0: <laughs> I certainly have seen a trend. Um, so subjects like engineering, maths and physics Um Tend to be perceived as being less nurturing um, as a subject yeah. um, and there's less room for creativity in what we conventionally see as being creative
1: yeah i think there's definitely that perception absolutely
0: yeah do you think that's do you think that's right though
1: i i don't think it's right i mean i th- I think that that there's just as much creativity in 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 you know, hard uh, Quantum physics, as there as there is in in biology, um, but maybe maybe there's a little bit more personal interaction in fields where maybe you're going out into the field and and working with mm. other people versus just sitting at a computer doing quantitative analysis. Um, so maybe that might contribute to it a little bit. Um, I knew I. I really enjoyed going out into the field and doing um, more hands-on research um, as opposed to just sitting there in front of a computer, Uh, but you know, there are positives and negatives to both. Um, But maybe it's possible that, that the, the, the former appeals more to to women than to
0: men. men. I'm so curious about what feels like a very defining moment of when, you know, you were sitting alongside a guy in your class and he got the same result as you and how drastically different your reactions were to that result.
1: (laughs) And I think that 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 really... I think if I hadn't been sitting next to him and he hadn't had that, that uh, comment of, Oh, it was just a hard test. I'll study harder next time. And then if I, if I hadn't had that conversation with him, I, I really do wonder if I would have continued on because at least even at that time, I thought that I, you know, I had the thought across my head, Oh wow. That this, here's a guy who did the exact same as I did. And all of a sudden he, and you know, and he, he, he's not letting it bother him. <laughs>
0: It actually gives me hope because often on this podcast um, the conversation can have a slight tinge of gender bias. Well,
1: I guess maybe if sitting next to somebody who got an hundred percent and he told me he told me, "Well, maybe you aren't cut out for it." That would have uh, <laughs> that would have been different, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's it's so important to highlight here that. M- men and women, boys and girls are completely equally capable of excelling in STEM fields. And I think that's really the first thought I had when you were telling your story is that uh, both sexes are very capable of achieving the same marks. But what is so apparent is our reaction to those marks. Um, And then I guess my next thought was, You know, we have a lot to learn um, from men, and I think men have a lot to learn from women. Um, What have you learned from men, um, seeing as you've been in such a male-dominated career so far?
1: I think confidence. I I think men tend to, uh, you know, even if they aren't necessarily ready to go and 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 do the thing, just sort of jumping off off the deep end and and making yourself swim. Um, I see more men do that than women, and I've tried to emulate that of you know even if you don't necessarily feel quite ready to do something, just you know apply for that fellowship or apply for that job or apply for you know a- apply for whatever it is or put yourself in that situation where you're uncomfortable. I think that's something that I struggle with and need to work on because I think we all have that imposter syndrome Mm. as women where we feel like we're not, if we're not 100% qualified for something, we shouldn't go for it. Whereas if you're, you know, if you've got 80% of the qualifications, you should probably apply for it. You never know um, if you'll get it. And if you do, then you'll figure out the other 20%. So
0: Yeah, I've, you know, being in a male-dominated environment of mechanical engineering, I've often, I I enjoyed working with men because I just felt like um, it was often like a very unemotional environment. Uh, It was very straightforward, very binary, very rational. And I kind of was relieved to be in that kind of, mindset um because as a woman I often felt very emotional particularly once a month um and it was almost a relief to be surrounded by that but then there were other times where I felt like um I was denying myself of my femininity
1: yeah I I definitely would feel sometimes like I shouldn't I you know I I have a big shoe collection and and I you know enjoy um wearing you know nice more feminine uh, clothing and I definitely felt like in certain situations where I should just sort of uh you know downplay mm. the femininity just to not stand out um but at a certain point I just started not caring <laughs> um, maybe that comes with age but um you know I just I I you can just be yourself and and as and it and it's it's okay. You know, whatever. And I remember there was another graduate student um, who was a few years younger than, than I was. And she said something to me sometime at one point, um, I I think I was a fifth year graduate student when she was first year. And she, she came up to me and and was just like, I I love that you wear cute shoes, you know, even every day and, you know, just sitting there working at your computer. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's, it inspires me to want to, to not hide who I am, um, as a scientist. So I was like, okay, (laughs) great. Um,
0: I love the fact that you've reached that point because I, I do feel that that does come with experience and confidence, um, which is often correlated to age.
1: I think for me, what did it was Finally, feeling confident in myself as a scientist, um, and for me, actually, that was when I finally got that first author Nature publication. Um, that was for some reason um, being published in Nature was it was always something I had in the as a, a big goal of mine. And um, finally, the uh, my first year as a postdoc, um, one of my papers was, my, was was published in Nature, and it made a little bit of a splash, and it was kind of a, a, an exciting result. and I think after that, I started feeling like, hey, you know, I, I've sort of proved to myself and to everyone that, that I can do good science and, um, and I didn't really have to feel like I was an imposter anymore. And so there, there was sort of a turning point where there were external things and, you, you know, just, you know, your publications and, 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 um, you start having ideas about different research areas and and going to telescopes and you know operating the largest telescope in the world by yourself and uh there's there's certain um, uh just confidence that comes from from having succeeded in science and then you just sort of start to care less what other people think
0: <laughs> yeah it's interesting that you have to reach that kind of milestone because. Uh, it sounds like you never really struggled with those subjects necessarily
1: um so i I definitely am not the the most mathematically inclined person. There are people who are much quicker at you know writing a program to do what they need to do to analyze this data or 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 what have you um, but one thing I know about myself is that I'm really persistent and that I will. Uh, I will work on something until I, until I get to it. And it might take me all night, but I'll, I'll get there. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that I don't want to make it seem like everything came easy to me because it really didn't. Um, and, and um, I, one of the reasons that I, and we'll probably get to this, but one of the reasons that I sort of switched fields was because I was um, feeling like I had more to offer um in, in giving back to younger scientists and um, and inspiring the next generation. I felt like I'd kind of done what I wanted to do with my own science. And um, I wanted to sort of switch gears into being, um, into to being a, you know, giving back to the next generation. And so part of that was because um, I didn't want to be sitting there struggling with code <laughs> for the rest of my life. Um, and the things that I enjoyed more were, outreach and giving talks and, um, and, and things like that. And so I, I kind of moved away from the sort of harder science aspects of my um, profession and now, now work in doing, um, you know, management and education and outreach and things like that.
0: I love the fact that you're so confident about that switch. Because I think some women, you know, I, I'm probably just talking about myself, I felt a bit guilty that I wasn't doing the harder science
1: I did too (laughs) okay
0: yeah
1: (laughs) especially some people some people um, mentors of mine were like oh you can't leave you oh no we're losing it you know and and I didn't leave I'm you know I'm still I'm still working for NASA but I'm I don't do any of my own research anymore Um, I kind of sort of tapered off on the projects that I was doing starting about six or seven years ago, and now I exclusively um, manage projects. Um, you know, I have summer interns every summer and and help them with their projects and things like that, but I don't um, directly do my own, um, you know, research going out to telescopes um, like I used to. Um, but I, I actually feel like I'm having now more of an impact through all these other programs that I'm doing with getting, you know, more, uh, Students into STEM and things like that, and I, I'm at peace with with what I discovered in my own research. And I'm I used to feel a little bit wistful every time you know the various meetings would come along, and I'd see people tweeting about what talks were going on and new discoveries were being made in my field. Uh, but now I'm just sort of excited about it. And I'm I'm happy to hear what people are are learning, and I'm also grateful that I don't have to to uh, to do all that much coding anymore,
0: which I really didn't enjoy.
1: <laughs>
0: so. mm. It sounds like your confidence is established on really checking in with what it is you want for yourself rather than kind of trying to please others or fulfill other people's expectations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was on the track to... Be um, a you know a university faculty member, and I thought that's what I wanted. I kind of thought that I wanted to do to be at a, a you know maybe a smaller liberal liberal arts college so that I could do some research and teach. But really, my heart was always in education and outreach. Whenever there was an opportunity to go and give a talk in a school or do uh, you know demonstration at an observatory or or just anything like that I always jumped at those opportunities
0: I think probably the most inspiring thing in listening to you is the contentment in the choices you've made and the career twists and turns it sounds like you've really fulfilled your academic goals for yourself but you're now doing something that is so meaningful to others
1: yeah, I and and also the work that we're doing um on a lot of these airborne missions is extremely important. It's extremely important for, for humanity as a whole, understanding, you know, ice melting and and um and how climate change is impacting the earth and, and everything. So we're I, I really feel like even though I'm not doing that science myself, I'm helping to convey it to others and and just getting to experience all um all this, this new, this uh, you know, every, all this Earth system science and, and everything that that NASA is doing in that area, it really inspires me to work, you know, in, in that in that uh, field.
0: Mm. Yeah, I got a slice um, of an insight into what uh, NASA does on Operation IceBridge um, when I did an episode there in Greenland, and uh, the team were just amazing. the the scientists involved. And I mean, it was almost like being part of a family.
1: Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. And John Sontag is the...
0: (laughs) Ah, I mean, I just love those guys so much. And I've really wanted to do something with them again, just to be part of such a worthwhile cause.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I was up with them in uh, in Greenland in um, March of this year. And So I was coordinating educational outreach with um, schools back in the United States. And so during every flight, we would uh, have several schools that would log in and chat live while the while the plane was flying, um, and so that was super fun. And everybody on board the plane was so excited. You know, every, every, every we take off, and then it's like, okay, what schools are joining us today? And it's, and I'd be like, okay, we have a fifth grade classroom in Maryland coming online, and two, you know, two hours. And so it, it sort of broke up the flight by having um, you know having these these schools join us, and
0: because they're and, long flights, they're kind and, of you know, eight hours. And... Yeah, I know they
1: are. hours and then we do the same thing um in uh in the other pool we base in Punta Arenas Chile um and then fly over Antarctica and those uh that plane can it's a DC-8 and that plane Mm. can fly for 12 hours so there's even more time to do classroom chats so um the Ice Ridge team is just amazing with outreach I work with lots of different missions and um you know and everybody is 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 very engaged um, with wanting to do outreach, but IceBridge especially. So they just really love sharing their mission with with students and teachers and the public.
0: One of the things that did strike me, though, when I was in Greenland is just the kind of bubble uh, that you're in. You know, often the NASA scientists were away from their families for weeks on end. Uh, Greenland itself was quite a harsh environment to be living in. I can only imagine that Punta Arenas and the South Pole expedition is even more harsh how have you managed to strike a balance between doing your work and other things in life
1: yeah so um i i'm fortunate in that with these missions i typically only go away at maximum three weeks at a time and then i do maybe three or four missions per year so it's not a huge amount of time um i'm married so my husband and i actually met during that nasa internship um that i mentioned that i did um uh, as an undergraduate and we both came back to that internship the following year as um as graduate student mentors for it and um we didn't know each other during the internship because he had done it the year prior to me and um and so he's also a scientist, and um, throughout our relationship, the, f- the first part of our relationship, um, I was in grad school in one location, and he was in grad school in another location that was uh, a two-hour drive away. And so we were long distance for the entire time that we were both getting our PhDs. So we're we're pretty used to being long distance. Um, works well. I mean, it works, works fine for us, obviously, we would prefer to be uh, together, but... Um, but you know, now with Skype and FaceTime and things like that, it's uh you know, even even in Greenland you can still be in contact um frequently and, and it hasn't been hasn't been um too hard. But I know for some of those some of those people who are on longer expeditions, you know, if you're talking about eight weeks or, or something like that, that that's definitely really hard, hard on, on families.
0: Uh oh, I'm just I, I don't know. It just sounds so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you sound like a woman that's got it all. Do you think you do? Oh, <laughs> um,
1: I I feel really fortunate. Yeah, I mean, I I it was definitely not easy with my husband and I. Um, we we had to sacrifice for each other alternatingly. So we um, we we were, as I said, uh, went to grad school about two hours away from each other. So we would alternate weekends, who would drive to see each other. And then um, we both graduated the same day, actually. So we couldn't go to each other's graduation, um, but in different schools. And then um, moved together to a location um, where I had gotten a postdoc and he sort of followed me there. And he was pretty unhappy there. And we talked about it. And um, so then we, moved to another location where he had a better opportunity and I was pretty unhappy there. (laughs) And so then we moved, then I got this job with, with NASA. um, And then he followed me and then he got another opportunity and I did not want to leave my job with NASA because as I hope is obvious, I Mm. love it. And I was, I was commuting for two years from, uh, by airplane (laughs) and so I would fly down on uh, you know a Monday and then work Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday stay that weekend and then work Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and then come back and have a long weekend and I did that for two years um, until I finally uh, was able to work at a situation where I can work remotely and um, that has just been amazing I now mean you know, I'm sitting right now in my office in my house and um, I'm able to to you know, coordinate these educational programs and go on missions and things like that. Um, and I, you know, I, I still travel, but I'm able to, to live with my husband, which took a long time. <laughs> so we did not finally get this situation until about three years ago. So I've only been, um, actually living with my husband for the last three years, even though we've been together for, uh, we've been married for nine years and then um together for for six before that so um so it took a while
0: (laughs) gosh yeah I'm just utterly inspired um by you because I just feel like you've really um pushed through the challenging times you know you don't strike me as someone who was ever willing to give up you know when things got tough um you kept going. Oh,
1: well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think um I think part of that actually probably has to do with um early involvement in sports. Um so I was a I was a competitive figure skater growing up. That was my other uh passion um in addition to science. So, I starting at age six I would skate every day after school and then um became more serious about it when I was uh about nine and ended up I, I trained with uh with Nancy Kerrigan's coach um uh down in on Cape Cod when I was growing up and I, I knew Nancy and and um and everything and so I was I was I was a pretty good skater at that age and it was uh, there was a decision that my parents and I had to make as to whether we would move because we lived in a rather rural area that had an ice rink and a and a um and a you know a place where I could skate, but it was not a training facility that you know one would go to the Olympics at and so I had to make a decision when I was about eleven as to whether I wanted to uh, you know move down to where this coach was um, and train with with Nancy Harrigan and, and all the people that were training down there. And my parents were willing to go for it. I'm an only child. And my dad's business was such that he could live anywhere as long as there was an airport nearby. And I remember just thinking, gosh, I just don't like skating when I am, when I'm down here as much as I do when I'm uh, skating at home. And um, I just, I would have had to stop going to school and be homeschooled and, you know, Devote full time life to skating, and at that point, I you know I liked school. I really liked math and science, and so I had I had these other goals as well. And so I sort of decided um, we're we not let's you know in consultation with my parents, we decided let's not do that. Um, so I still skated, um, and so I think those lessons of of uh, you know working hard towards goals and and everything carry over into everyday life. Um,
0: but also having to choose
1: uh, having yeah having to make that choice was was interesting for an eleven year old <laughs> you mm-hmm. know um, and I would see people who I had skated with um, who were you know on TV or or made it um, or or some who didn't you know there were a lot there was this, there were some people who I skated with who who, who made that decision to to um, devote their lives to ice skating at that young age and then, you know, you get an injury and then what do you do after that? And so I was glad that I I continued skating, um, so that I, throughout, throughout middle and high school. And when I got to college, um, the collegiate skating, uh, scene was just starting. So it's, uh, it's, it's nowadays, there's a lot more schools that offer collegiate figure skating, but, um, back in the day, only a few did. and um, but I, I started the collegiate figure skating team at my college, um along with another uh, another student. Um, and we uh, we we uh, built it up that that skating team, and I was able to skate throughout my undergrad, which was fantastic. So having that that, in addition to um, to into, into science and everything else was was really fun.
0: Yeah, it's it's again very inspiring to hear that you were not just STEM focused, um, but that you had outside interests um which, you know, could have actually distracted you, but again, you stayed on the path, STEM path.
1: So my, my little tiny team that I that I formed, uh my first year of graduate school qualified for Collegiate Nationals. And um, this caused this was a big deal because the the school that I went to graduate school at uh, is not at all known for um, sports in any way. And so um, the uh, the Los Angeles Times wrote a, an article about how uh, you know how we had qualified for nationals and what a big deal this was and blah blah blah. And uh, the title oh and the title of their uh, article was "Brainy Skaters Have an Edge." <laughs> <I> love that. <laughs> um, and they, when they interviewed us they tried to make it seem like we were good at skating because we understood yeah. the physics of it and sort they sort of asked like leading questions to that effect anyway um and uh so the article comes out and the 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 person who I was working with uh who was my initial advisor said uh, he's like oh that's 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 nice that you're in, lo- in the LA times too bad it's not for science <laughs> I was like
0: oh <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> I mean, I just think that's a massive positive that not only they're sort of you know post grad everything but you're also um pursuing something so completely disconnected
1: yeah yeah, it was um and I, I continued skating for another year and then it just got to the point where um my research just became too intense and i couldn't I couldn't continue skating, plus I was kind of as you get older in skating you're and the, that just from a physics perspective, if your moment of inertia increases, <laughs> you're gonna decrease your angular acceleration. So you won't be able to do the jumps anymore and mm-hmm. things like that. So I was uh I was sort of losing my my uh ability to uh to skate as well as I had as a as a younger person. But it was I was glad that I did it and um you know it was fun to fun to have that out.
0: It sounds like not just you know outside uh interest, but also um a need to connect with others was important and is important for you. Oh yeah. Um, which dare I say is quite a female trait. <laughs> I don't want to typecast, but um, has that been important for you? Connecting with others?
1: Definitely. I mean, I would, I don't think I would have gotten through, through um, an undergraduate physics major without, without working with other people and, and just, you know, having those those connections, um, just sitting there doing problem sets, but also just having people to talk to. Um, I, I think I also benefited. I had a really, I had, I've, I've had a lot of great advisors. Um, my my undergraduate advisors who I worked, I did a few different projects um, as an undergrad with them and, and they were all great. And then my PhD advisor um, was fantastic and very supportive. And so I've I really, been fortunate because I've seen um, other, you know, what can happen if if you have if you don't get along with your advisor, um, especially as a PhD student where that relationship is so important. So I've been I've been really fortunate that the people that I've been um, that I've had the opportunity to work for have been really great.
0: There doesn't seem to be a kind of air about you where you're really that conscious about gender. I mean, when you talk about people, you seem to be very sort of like all inclusive.
1: Yeah. So I was actually almost hesitant to do this podcast because I felt like, well, I don't have, you know, you hear about some of these horrible stories that people have. And like, I just really don't have any horrible stories. Uh, You know, I, I can remember being in um poster sessions, you know, scientific poster sessions where you um you know, you're standing there by your poster and it's kind of like, you know, people walk by and and they're you know talking to you and and I I remember being aware that there were there were some male faculty who were taking an interest in my in my poster more so than they were maybe the guys standing next to me and I felt like maybe and I felt like that attention was just because I was a, you know, a somewhat attractive female and I could sort of tell that they were talking to me more because of that. Um, and I, that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, but it was nothing overt ever, you know, occurred or anything like that. But I, I do remember having that, that feeling like, Oh, they're only talking to me because I'm a, I'm a cute girl. Mm. But, uh, But at the same time, I was like, well, at least they're hearing about my research, you know, (laughs) so it's... uh, Do you think that was a
0: confidence thing then, rather than uh... a...
1: Yeah, I was like, all right, I can use this to my advantage. Why not? You know, they're going to talk to me, I'm going to tell them about my work. So it's...
0: That's such an empowered attitude. It's so amazing. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I mean, I often felt quite embarrassed for being female amongst so many men, and I kind of wanted to hide or shy away from it all did you experience that ever
1: yeah I definitely did as an undergraduate absolutely but there's a certain power to it too um if you can use it to your advantage why not um you know maybe you know just uh, people are going to notice you so more so make sure have some awesome science and tell them about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, it, it it works out if if it gets you to be able to, uh, to to tell your research to more people or get more people to hear about your work, and then all you have to do is just have the awesome work to back it up, and then you're all set. You know, especially in this age, I feel uh, hearing more and more stories of you know what happened, what has happened to some some women in STEM. I just I feel so fortunate that I really didn't have, have any horror stories.
0: I certainly don't want this podcast to be an opportunity for um, women to kind of dish the dirt. (laughs) Um, But, you know, just I, what you said about how you handled that kind of male attention is exactly what I hope to have come out of silence because I want to learn how to handle it. I enjoy being a woman. Yeah. I just, so, you know, learning the tools of how to deal with our femininity.
1: Yeah, and I think it just all comes back to confidence and having the science to back it up. Or, you know, if they're going to be paying attention to you, have them pay attention to you for the right reasons, um, you know, because your science is so great. Um, and so you can use, use it to your advantage, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I think that theme has really been consistent in everything you said, because um, back in the past when you were dealing with 71%, um, there was an opportunity for you to lose confidence, but actually um, it seems to have spurred you.
1: I mean, I certainly did lose confidence at that point. It, I, I mean... I, went, I, went, I lost so much confidence in that I went back and was looking at the course catalog mm. as to how to be an English major. So it's it, it definitely, I feel like maybe I'm coming across as, as too confident right now.
0: No, no, not at all. Because uh, what, what I get from you is that you have had challenges and it's those challenges that have allowed you to develop the strength inner strength and confidence to overcome those challenges. So I don't view you as someone that's managed to escape self-doubt or, you know, self-belief.
1: Yeah, because when I first got to grad school, I was so scared. I mean, I, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pass these classes. You know, this was you know, this where I was going to grad school is a very big deal research university. And I was worried about, uh, you know, am I going to get good grades? Am I going to, be able to to do research and I you know I was incredibly having incredible imposter syndrome when I when I first got to grad school um so I I certainly struggled with that absolutely
0: yeah but what I just find so inspiring about listening to you is that you did pull through it because imposter syndrome comes up a lot in my podcasts and um You know, it's clear that it's there and many women suffer from it, particularly in STEM. But there's less advice on how to get to the other side of it.
1: I think it's fake it till you make it. I can't can't remember. Uh, There was some TED talk or something that I watched. And, you know, if you, I can't remember who it was, but it was just, uh, it was just, uh, and this this talk came long afterwards. But, you know, if you're put in a situation, just, just try and do your best and just sort of I mean I remember my first um my first big talk at the American Astronomical society meeting um this is uh, as a grad student and I had this kind of interesting results on uh looking at um at, uh, looking at Saturn, Saturn's moon Titan and the research that I had been doing with with telescopes and it was a pretty cool result and I was excited about it um and this talk was in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. And this was my first big time, you know, giving a, giving a, a talk at a meeting. And, um, I threw up in the bathroom before the talk. I was so nervous. I mean, I like wow. literally, and, uh, I came out and then I'm, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm about to give my talk and I'm, Somebody had told me that there's like an acupressure point on your hand that if you like squeeze in between your thumb and forefinger, that will keep you th- from throwing up. So I'm like squeezing this point on my hand. And I get up there and I give my talk and it went just fine. Um and uh, you know, afterwards it was it was a good experience. And my advisor um uh afterwards came up to me and was like, I'm really proud of you. And that from him was just like amazing praise. Um, because he did not he did not give out praise uh lightly uh and so it just having that confidence of of giving that first talk and and having a good scientific result and and <laughs> not throwing up on stage um, was was really good so
0: overcoming a major hurdle
1: yeah yeah and now you know I give talks all the time and it's not even a big deal but I I, I and I, and so I see with with my students um during the summer when you know when we have them all give Final oral presentations, and I I know just how nervous they are, and um, you know I can kind of feel that that energy because I I experienced it myself, um, so I, I try and be really sensitive to that and and help them through it. But
0: so I think I can guess the answer, but I want to hear it um, in your own words. What's your relationship to failure?
1: I didn't get into my first choice of undergrad. I got rejected from a lot of jobs I applied to and fellow. Um, actually fellowships no i got all the fellowships but um got rejected from a few grad schools um i definitely um you know things have not i but i but i have been really fortunate in that the things that i've tried and really worked on have 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 come through so i i i think my relationship is that you know if it happens if you if you fail at something just just keep keep going and keep trying to make it work. And if, if it's something you truly want, then hopefully it'll, it'll, um, it'll happen for you. There's that, uh, there's that famous talk, the last lecture by Randy Pausch. Did you ever see that? He was a college professor um, at uh, Carnegie Mellon University and um, he, he had uh, fatal pancreatic cancer and he gave this, this last lecture to his students and it kind of went viral about nine or 10 years ago and um it was kind of just like life lessons and uh he said you know the brick walls are there for a reason um you know we're, we will all we will all uh, face brick walls um and the the brick walls are there to show you uh to, to, to make you see how badly you really want it so that really resonated with me
0: so obviously one of the kind of big pressures of being a woman is that there are many sides um to us many dimensions and kind of one of the major ones is having a family and things like that it's very it's a very sort of feminine aspect to us um what are your goals and aspirations with regards to that if you don't mind me asking
1: oh yeah so um my you know I'm I'm married and my husband and I are are um very happy um just being the two of us um we at one point thought we might want kids but we weren't really sure and um just kind of over the course of time just decided that um that we um didn't want to have them um i'm a godmother to i love kids i love you know i mean i'm going on into schools all the time giving talks and things like that um but we just felt like um that um we didn't um need to have our own children so um it because of that it enables me to you know i'm able to travel a lot more than i would if i had kids at home and things like that um but uh but yeah it was something that i definitely struggled with for a while
0: was that tied in somehow with your age
1: a little bit um because i'm getting to the point now where um where i would probably get hard to have them if i wanted to have them right now um but but yeah it's uh, you know it I, kind of have to make that decision sort of mid 30s ish and uh it, we kind of waffled about it for a while um and just neither of us felt that really strong desire to do it and so we felt like if there's not that strong desire then maybe the answer is no but um we're still at the point you know I, yeah so it's we're 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 feeling like no at this point <laughs>
0: Yeah, I ask because um, a lot of women in STEM and probably other fields um, spend so much time studying and working post-studies and really establishing themselves career-wise that often there isn't the bandwidth to actually think about motherhood. Um, So I'm always so curious to know how um, women, particularly women that have had extensive academic careers, kind of juggle that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it just adds a whole another dimension to it Um, i mean many of my friends are are mothers now and um i think having a supportive spouse is the most important thing and really having uh, having that shared equally among the among the spouses is is so important Um, i i had a great example of that in my phd advisor who was a man um but he took family leave when their daughter was born um and seeing that and, you know, he, he took, took that time away and how the university that I was at was really supportive of, of men taking um, family leave as well. Um, I think that's, that's really great. And we need to do more of that as a society. I mean, I know America is terrible, but in other countries, there, there, you know, better laws where both men and women get, get family leave when a child is born. And I think we need to work on making those uh, making that happen in in America as well. Um, currently, I think what we have is kind of is very sad. I mean, it's there's nothing that's mandated, or is it six weeks or something? Very very low. Um, so, but clearly, in other countries, they figured this out. So, I think we need to to be better about that. So, what's the uh,
0: aspirations for the future? Do you ever set sort of longer term goals?
1: Yeah. So, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, the I love my job right now, and I want to just keep doing it as long as I can. Um, in, my, in my field now, the sort of logical next step would be to go to maybe NASA headquarters and, and run educational programs or things like that. Um, I don't think I'm really ready for that right now. I also love where I live um, and the idea of moving again um, after having moved so much. Uh, in the earlier parts of my career is really not that appealing. So maybe down the line, I might like to do something where I can have a a larger scale impact on um, educational programs at NASA or NSF or, but for now I'm super happy. I, I love that I get to run a summer internship every year and all the students that come through that, I feel like they're kind of my kids in a way. Um, You know, I'm, just wrote recommendation letters for a couple of them uh, the last 30 minutes for jobs they are applying to. And so I just love, uh, you know, I have all these students that are um, now pursuing their dreams and, and everything. And then, and then I love travel, travel. I was always motivated by travel. I told my advisor early on, you know, I'm very motivated by international travel. <laughs> so it was like, if you get this paper done, you can, you can go to this conference in Greece or wherever it was. Um, so, uh, so now getting to you know fly on ice bridge flights and and go all over the world with the airborne science program, um, I just really feel like I kind of have the ideal job situation right now. And the fact that I don't have to commute across the country <laughs> for my job is great as well.
0: Well thank you so much for being on this episode. Um, I feel like I've spent the entire time uh, listening and talking with you just smiling on my cheeks hurt um, because I just feel like so inspired by the way you have kind of navigated through your career and the fact that you have worked so hard academically and really kind of contributed to the body of knowledge but then now doing so much um, for others is just truly inspiring so thank you for sharing your journey with us
1: oh well thank you so much for having me this has been really fun that's it from our
0: stem guest this week uh gosh i had goosebumps having listened to her story and I, i just feel like attitude is everything and uh i really feel very inspired having heard from someone who hasn't been afraid of hard work but has also um travel through her career journey to end up in a place where she's not just very content with what she's doing but she's really helping others it certainly inspired me today thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe and catch you next week on silence